Infirmary Media. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. I am Mark James, and welcome back to Dueling Decades. This week, we bring you the week experience. I will be representing September 15th through the 21st of 1996 alongside the other duelers. First off, bringing the best of September 14th through the 20th, 1986, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? We got huge news for this episode to begin things off. And that huge news is I'm no longer a Jets fan. <laughs> <laughs> what took you so long? Fucking Raiders, baby. Oh, you're sporting the Chucky shirt. Sporting oh. the Chucky shirt. There we go. Nice. Fuck the jests. I'm I'm in your boat now, Dave. It's not just for this episode. I'm not pandering. Me and my buddies were done. Yeah, what we're do you mean though? You're in my done. boat. I never liked the Jets to begin with. Well, I, that's what I mean. I don't like them either. Perfect. <laughs> so we share that. But no, the uh the other big news, Drew Zachman is now a permanent part of the show. No longer a guest anymore. Him and Joe Finley and Mike Ranger, all permanent fixtures, so they will still be rotating in and out, so nothing will change on anybody else's end. But from our end, it feels much better to know that they're part of the show rather than just coming on to help us out. So, yeah, now yeah, now we just get health insurance on a 401k. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's coming. Just uh, wait for that by the mailbox. I will. Also returning to the panel this week, representing September 16th through the 22nd of 1973. Please welcome back to the show the professor, Drew Zachman. What's up, guys? How are you? Hope everyone's doing well, being safe, and I am. Uh, I'm looking forward to 1973. It was a good year. And as always, here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So back behind the bench is the brazen badass from Beantown. All rise for the Honorable Judge Dave Schultz. No, no, no. Please sit down, relax, because I am the non-celebrity celebrity judge. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. Okay, duelers, we only have one week. And I'm hot like wasabi when I bust rhymes, big like Leanne rhymes, because I'm all about dueling decades. All right, let's toss it right down to Dave Schultz for the coin toss. Okay, guys, I'm keeping with my new tradition here of my clamshell of the film Flipper with... <laughs> Paul Hogan, 
and Elijah yes. Wood. There, there it is. There it is in all of its glory. I mentioned on the front, uh, we have those two stars. On the back, we have Elijah Wood, and he's doing a little tango with Flipper. And uh, I've mentioned on the show before, Paul Hogan taking a shower. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that's not a crock. This is a crock. Um Cock. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, you guys pick your poison. All right, Drew Zachman, you call it this week. I want Elijah Wood. Well, he's on the front and the back, so do you want Elijah Wood looking cool with the sunglasses uh, on his face or with him doing the tango with Flipper? That's the I want him doing the tango with Flipper. So that's tails. Okay, hold on. It's going up and uh, oh, yeah. That's a lot of tails. Oh, I want to hear Christ. it. Jesus Christ. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it bounced off my knee. You all right there? Drew, I am okay. I okay. wish I had your dueling decades health insurance right now, but uh, you lose. It is heads. Oh. Front cover. Damn it. All right, Man Crush, you take control of the board and get to select our first category. Where are we going? Let's start this sucker off with news here. Let's go to September 14th, 1986. There was a real, there was a ton of shitty news the week that I had. So I went with this one. It's simple. But it's the beginning of what would be one of the most incredible short-lived careers any athlete ever had. And let me get right to the story. It's Bo Jackson cracks first major league home run. Kansas City. Where's Kansas City? Kansas City, Kansas, right? Missouri. Missouri. Or or that's what I meant. Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's actually both, and they're right across from each other? Well, yeah, so this is it, the other one. Can I? I'm, 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 I'm going to go on a limb and say dueling decades does not reimburse you for uh, education, does it? No, well, no. <laughs> it's not a geography show. Fuck. <laughs> Anyhow, it says uh, Kansas City rookie Bo Jackson hit his first major league home run Sunday, and it was a memorable one. The former Heisman Trophy winner from Auburn hit a towering 475-foot home run into the grassy knoll beyond left center field fence at Royal Stadium off Seattle starter Mike Moore. A chart of longest balls hit in Royal Stadium showed that Jackson's drive landed approximately five feet above a home run by former Chicago White Sox slugger Richie Allen in 1974. So his first ever home run was the longest home run ever at Royal Stadium. Pretty fucking outstanding. Wow. I mean, you got to look at the whole track record of this guy. You know, he's the only athlete ever to go to the Pro Bowl and the Major League All-Star game, which is fucking incredible. He was able to do the two. Then there's all this talk about, I don't know how closely he followed his career, but that he ran a 4.1240 at the Combine. Insane. I didn't hear which that. Which is fucking nuts. Yeah, it's but it's, it's highly contested. So I found this guy, uh, Harry Buffington. He was the, he's a scouting legend. This guy's been around forever. And at the time, he was the director of the National Combine, which is like before the way that they had it now. And he attests that Bo did run a 4.12 second 40. And he stated that his second run was 4.22. So even like if 4.12 was a bad time, which he claims was not his second run was 4.22, which is fast as fuck. If you're on a four, three, that's amazing. But yeah, running a four, two is amazing. And then also you take into account just how big he was. Like he was no like, slender wide receiver no. he was just a, a house he is an absolute and he monster. claims he hardly ever lifted weights which is fucking unreal for a guy of his stature he, i mean he was huge everybody knows bo knows and 
the guy's stats were fucking off the chart too. He actually had a season with the Raiders. He didn't qualify at the time because he only played in seven games. He only had 81 carries. He ran for 6.8 yards a carry. Yeah, you're not going to tackle him. That's Brian it's Bosworth found ridiculous. out. Ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. But anyhow, this is his first ever home run. Of course, we know what happened to him with the dislocated hip, and then he had to get a hip replacement, and then he was never the same, which is really sad because he definitely would have broken all kinds of records. That dude was like the best athlete ever seen. Fucking Bengals. Uh, yeah, of all fucking teams, who day? They're from uh, they're from Kansas, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just down the road from Ohio. All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the news round? Uh, so I'm also sticking with sports, actually. So on September 20th, 1973, probably one of the best baseball players of all time announces his retirement, uh, which would take place at the end of the 1973 season. But I'm talking about the Say Hey Kid himself, Willie Mays. He wound up finishing his career with 660 home runs, and at the time... Those were the that was the third most uh, at that time. Uh, I think right now he's actually tied for fifth with Albert Pujols. Uh, they both have 660, but I'm sure Pujols would probably pass him maybe even by the time this episode airs. Actually, everybody remembers Willie Mays making that play. It was during the uh, game one of the 1954 World Series. Vic Wirtz hits a fly ball to deep center field, makes the catch over his shoulder, turns around, throws the ball back in. Just an amazing play. And I feel like if you no baseball or you ever if you think of like one highlight from the game of baseball it's probably going to be the Willie Mays highlight where he catches that ball over his shoulder which is not an easy play uh but his stats i mean they're insane a 24 time all-star two time national league mvp 12 gold gloves the guy could hit infield he was a four time home run champ national league batting champ in 54 rookie of the year four time stolen base leader so the guy could do everything he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1979, and somehow he only got 94.7% of the votes, which is complete bullshit. So those, what, 4.3% people are idiots. 5.3%. I can't do math. I need that. I need that education reimbursement, guys. But yeah, 12th all-time in hits, 12th all-time in RBI, 7th all-time in runs. If you guys like war, 5th all-time in war. I mean, Willie Mays is one of the best baseball players ever. And on that day... September 20th, 1973, he announced that he would be stepping away from the game. All right, guys, third time's a charm. So, you know, September 15th through the 21st of 1996 was a really big week for baseball. So, you know what? Once again, let's talk about the boys of summer that we only seem to watch in the fall. So that <laughs> week, <laughs> September 15th, we had the Texas Rangers. They actually retired their very first number, and that was Nolan Ryan's number 34. The next day, Paul Molitor of the Twins, he's the 21st player in Major League Baseball history to have 3,000 hits. The day after that, Hideo Nomo, no hits the Colorado Rockies. And then the following day, that's where I'll go for my news story. And we'll go over to the record in Hackensack, New Jersey, where we see the headline, Clemens gets 20 strikeouts. Roger Clemens matched the only pitcher who has ever done this and struck out 20 himself. The Red Sox right-hander equaled his own major league record Wednesday night, fanning 20 batters and pitching a four-hitter to lead Boston over the Detroit Tigers 4 nothing. So Roger Clemens that night has 20 strikeouts, and now in history, it's only been done four times currently. 
At the time, he was the only pitcher to do it. Since then, it's been done by Max Scherzer and... Um, Kerry Wood. And Kerry Wood. Of course, the next year, he would go on to sign a four-year, $40 million deal to play for the Toronto Blue Jays. I like to think that pitching that 20 strikeouts had a little something to do with getting that $40 million deal. It's probably because so, the, uh, the PEDs were probably better in Toronto. They're easier to get. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. Where's Joe Finley when we need him? You can answer that for us. <laughs> so that's what I got. September 18th, 1996, Roger Clemens, fans 20. Let's head over to our judge for this episode, Dave Schultz, for the verdict. All right, well, let me go. First off, Mark, I really appreciate you trying to appeal to my my Massachusetts native on the inside of me because I no longer live there, but I'm still a, a big Boston Red Sox fan. And the Rocket KN20 was very impressive, but as Man Crush just mentioned, this was Fat Roger. Okay, this yeah. <laughs> wasn't this wasn't the the young Roger Clemens of old or anything. We at that time, uh, you know, the Sox thought he was washed up, and hence why they let him walk to Toronto and later the dreaded New York Yankees. But let's hop uh, to the first entry here in 1986, Bo Jackson's first home run. We learned that Man Crush completely sucks at geography, which is important because something that he's really good at is adjusting for inflation on this show. And I expect that wholeheartedly <laughs> over the course of the next hour. Uh, something I found very interesting about that story that you told Man Crush was the name of the scout, uh, Harry Buffington, mm-hmm. who I think might have wasted his career with a name like that, which, you know, was perfect for <laughs> to be a porn star. First thing I thought of when I saw it. <laughs> Harry Buffington. Yeah, that's that's a good one. That's, that's like something you'd like crank call somebody with. You know, <laughs> hello, this is Harry Buffing. <laughs> Did you see Bo Jackson's first home run? It was amazing. Hit it right into the grass. Right 4.12, I was there. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking like I that. I know, like what a 1930s fuck? radio announcer. Uh, <laughs> hey. Now, 1973, Drew came with Willie Mays retiring. Interestingly enough, where Harry Buffington sounds like a porno name, Vic Wirtz, uh, the guy that hit that ball that Willie Mays caught could have been the poster child for VD. So (laughs) some really nice parallels here. Besides the fact all of you guys pick baseball, they're all really impressive feats, to be honest with you. I mean, Willie Mays, absolute legend. You mentioned Bo Jackson, what could have been. And uh, Roger Clemens, in his time, was truly one of the best pitchers on the face of the earth. But um, you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to go with 1973 because Willie Mays... It's just, uh, you know, and Drew mentioned how the numbers weren't there. Well, he got into the Hall of Fame, but he still got some writers who were not on board with it, which is just ridiculous. Absolutely insane. I mean, you know, there there had to be some racist pricks involved in that. But still, Willie Mays was an outstanding ball player and is legendary beyond belief. I'll tell you what, Bo Jackson's still a legend, even though he had a short, you know, short career for both. Guy was still a beast. I mean, watching that was at the nineteen was the eighty, the eighty eight or eighty nine All Star game in California. I think it was eighty nine. He was an All Star. Yep. He like ran, like literally ran up the wall, right? Yep. To catch he a fucking fly ball. caught the ball, fucking ran like it was nothing. Like if it was yeah. just us running in the outfield, that was him running up that wall. There was no effort, guys. To that stop tickling each other's balls here, okay? Drew Sorry. won the round. All right. If we, right. we want to go even beyond that. 
Roger Clemens is pretty cool too because he named all of his kids with a name that starts with a K. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's, that's right. pretty pretty ballsy too. So yeah. this is like Cody Kyle. Come on, Roger. <laughs> that's how he said it too. When he they handed him the child. <laughs> this is Cody. Oh, this one's Kyle. Uh, Cody. All right, Drew Zachman, you win the first round, pick up the very first point, but more importantly, you take control of the board and get to select our next category. All right, I'm going to – usually we, we save this one towards the end, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw movies out right now. Let's do that. So this movie was released on September 18th, 1973, and the tagline, which is a great one, to pull off a job no one would ever dare, you need a team no one would ever believe. And I'll tell you what, this team was pretty unbelievable because this movie featured two entertainment monsters. You had Billy D. Williams and you had Richard Pryor. And it was directed by the highly acclaimed Sidney Fury, who is responsible for giving us the flawless, flawless Iron Eagle franchise. All right. This Paramount Pictures classic film changed the way we look at life and how we view drug addiction as well as how we view ourselves. I know this movie changed the way I live my life. And everyone would do themselves a favor if they just dedicated the proper 134 minutes it takes to watch this film. The world would be a much better place. And by now, I'm sure everybody knows exactly what movie I'm talking about. That movie's called Hit. With the exclamation point at the end. Uh, this, movie is, this movie is so amazing. Gene Siskel gave it three out of four stars, stating that it provided solid entertainment and should be a box office smash. And this story is about a federal agent trying to destroy a drug zone after his daughter dies from a heroin overdose. Deep movie. There's comedy involved. I don't have the box office numbers in front of me, but from what I recall, this movie's box office all easily cracked the top 200 movies from the year. So it was clearly a success. But yeah, hit released in its hit. You got to say it, say it right. Hit uh, released September 18th, 1973. You gotta say it like a 1930s uh, baseball broadcaster. Yeah, hit, hit, my what, see, hit, go and see. Is hit it a now. baseball movie or no? I just told you what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I was trying to picture was, Billy D. Williams in something that I forget if it happened in uh, Kansas City. But either one, I'm not too sure. I'll have to verify that for you. Hit. All right, man crush. What did you bring for the movies round? Oh, shit. Let's go uh, September 20th, 1986, and it really does pay off to do some research. Uh, here's a gem that premiered as a sneak preview, and the question here is, why did this movie have a sneak preview? And the answer is pretty simple with this one. <laughs> the studio actually thought this movie was going to be a flop, and they didn't think the American audience was going to go see it. Matter of fact, 20th Century Fox initially balked at this movie. They watched it for 20 minutes, and they told one of the, <laughs> the writers of this movie, nah, this will never work. Well, that, that movie was still made on a sub $10 million budget, and it, their focus was on the North American audience. And by the end of 1986, this was the second highest grossing movie in the United States, only behind Top Gun, and the highest grossing Australian film in the world that year. Uh, this little film from Down Under would go on to rake in $328 million at the box office in 1986. And this is just so uh, Dave can get a little chubby. That's Roughly $778 in 2020. <laughs> nice. These numbers are staggering for a comedy, and it's insane for a movie to just come out of the bush that blew everyone away. Even the main actor, who was a TV star in Australia, he figured that, this is a quote, he said, I figured we were just making a nice little comedy movie for Australia. And aside from Top Gun, which it barely edged out, it was like a million dollar difference for the year, 
It beat out Platoon, Karate Kid 2, Aliens, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I know I've said it before, like, numbers aren't everything. However, when a film comes out of nowhere to blow everyone out of the water, it's a big fucking deal. And this what was movie... The, what was the budget you said was $10 million? It was actually, it was around 8 It was around Holy $8 million. Sh- talk about an ROI. Holy shit. Oh, uh, it was insane. This movie, it would get two sequels as well, uh, neither of which would be quite as good as the, the original. I mean, they never are. But the entire franchise would go on to make $607 million overall. Wow. It's over a billion dollars. That's fucking ridiculous. So if you're in the mood for like learning how to use a bidet, crocodile attacks, grabbing crotches, new ways to ingest cocaine, pacified buffaloes, a guy who everyone thinks is Clint Eastwood, large knives, and a bunch of other scenes that you would never see in a 2020 movie, then Paul Hogan's Crocodile Dundee is the movie for you. And I'm so glad that Dave said at the very beginning of this episode, he immediately went to the, uh, the, the croc joke. Because that's what this dude was known for. He had other movies, but that's not a knife. Oh, this dude, is I watched knife. it again last night. Fucking great! It's so funny, and like, there's so many scenes in the movie, and I'm not even joking about that. Like, how many scenes have you seen in a comedy where people are doing cocaine anymore? Yeah, <laughs> not enough. Yeah, you never see that. And this fucking dude's like doing line after line after line, and then fucking he's like, "Oh, you got a stuffed nose, do you?" Hold on, and this guy's all into it. Like, what's this guy gonna do? And he gets the boiling fucking water and he pours all the guy's <laughs> coke into the boiling water and puts a towel over his head. Just sniff that in. You'll be clear as a whistle. <laughs> like, what the fuck? There's so many, like, just little fucking jokes that are hidden in there. The whole scene with the bidet, fucking hilarious. But yeah, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, we got the uh, September 20th, 1986. All right, we'll go 10 years into the future to September 20th, 1996 in the Courier-Journal to a headline that reads, Willis Shines in Knockoff of Yo Jimbo. Any remake or adaptation or masterwork must face this underwaving rule. No matter how great or how lousy the new vision turns out, it'll be known as a reworking of its source. Walter Hill's Last Man Standing is a top-notch knockoff. This is Hill's westernized homage to Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, the one about the warrior who peddles his services to both sides in a blood feud. It worked for Clint Eastwood in the Wild West in Fistful of Dollars, Sergio Leone's 1964 homage to Yojimbo. The story, it's a universal one. Warring factions, vulnerable to infiltration, find themselves trusting a fellow who means neither side any good. So this is Last Man Standing, Starring Bruce Willis, New Line Cinema originally wanted to do a remake of Yo Jimbo, more in the vein of Mad Max or Escape from New York. But director Walter Hill insisted on having this set in Depression-era Texas. The big standout performance for me in this one was, of course, Bruce Dern. It was kind of like a comeback for Bruce Dern's career. The film also stars Christopher Walken and Michael Imperioli. So, released September 20th, 1996, I give you the not box office smash, The Last Man Standing. Took a beating at the box office. Uh, Budget of $67 million, cumulative worldwide gross of just $47 million. It's not always about the money, man. All right, let's kick it over to Dave Schultz for the ruling on the movies round. It's not always about the money until we're talking about the world of box office hits, where it is 
absolutely everything about the money, Drew. And uh, <laughs> let me see here. I think the only one that actually made any money was the pick in 1986. But let's talk about everybody's pick individually real quick here. I, I like Drew's pick of 1973 because uh, do you guys say exclamation mark or point? Exclamation mark. I say mark, I think. Yeah. Anytime you add an exclamation mark or point to the end of anything, it automatically makes it better. So you definitely get points for that. Uh, 1986. Uh, okay, Crocodile Dundee. This movie apparently is about some dude from Australia. But is that near Denver or something? Where is Australia exactly? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. But uh, it was a good movie. I mean, it's a big part of my childhood. Even though as I got older, I realized you could have basically replaced Paul Hogan with Ernest P. Worrell, and the movie would have been virtually the same. No fucking Absolutely. Way Those hijinks. Oh, dude, yeah. he was beating the shit out of people. He knocked a dude out and fucking like was talking to animals and shit. You could not put Ernest P. Worrell in there. Yeah, talking to animals. Do you, that's do that's remember, a toughie. Do you remember the scene? Well, that's the only thing that Ernest can get away with. <laughs> do you remember the scene where the fucking hunters are out trying to shoot the kangaroos, and he comes out of nowhere and fucking shoots them all like well shoots at them all and gets them all to run away Ernest P. Worrell cannot do that man I bet you impossible could. I bet you no. I'm willing to bet he could and I, I challenge anybody out there to think about this just for a few minutes and see whose side you may he uh, stabbed a crocodile in the Dude, fucking Ernest face. P. Worrell freaking escaped from jail are you kidding me what are you talking about he could do anything Paul just stop I will just okay stop. I'll stop it's like uh, talking to my 14 year old well, I wish I was 14. <laughs> and uh, 1996, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. I do not remember ever seeing this movie. Good for you. Yeah, well, great. <laughs> I'm blessed. I'm truly blessed. But I think the answer here has to be obvious by now, despite me and Man Crush disagreeing on who the movie could, in fact, star. Crocodile Dundee gets the win. And plus, you know something else? If we didn't have that first one, we never would have had Crocodile Dundee. What was that? What was the third movie? Was Los it Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. So that was cinematic gold right there. The whole franchise made $600 million. It's fucking insane. Yeah, but it never had an exclamation mark at the end of the name. <laughs> I'll, I'll add it. Actually, funny enough, the name in Australia was different than our name because ours, when you looked at the poster, it had two quotation marks on it. So it was like Crocodile Dundee. Uh-huh. Because they didn't want people in the United States to think it was about a monster named Crocodile Dundee. So they put the quotation marks around Crocodile. Whereas in Australia, the logo just said Crocodile Dundee. Dude, all, all four of us couldn't figure out if it was exclamation mark or point. So saying that, you know, those quotation marks really like separated it enough so the consciousness of American people were like, oh, this isn't some kind of horror flick. Seems like a stretch to me. I don't know. Well, you remember towards the beginning of the 80s, you had like the alligator movie and, you know, obviously you had Jaws and everything else. So what are you going to do? But Ernest couldn't do He couldn't pull off an Australian. Bro. Bet she could. Nah. We'll never know. We'll never know at this point. Animation. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you pick up a point and take control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right. Let's go over to Hot Products. Let's take this one out. September 19th. 1986. I, I think this might be a first for the show. Mark talked about this on the last episode, and occasionally we get some like off-the-wall hot products, and this is definitely one of them. I was flipping through the LA Times on September 19th, 1986, and I was looking for a product, and I landed on a massive two-page spread. And initially, I blew right past it. I was thinking it was like an ad for a movie. 
and it was actually an ad for a new attraction that was going to be launched at Disney theme parks on September 19th, 1986, both in Anaheim and in Orlando. And I totally, I remember all the buzz about this leading up to it. The 3D movie, it went by the name of Captain EO. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It was written by George Lucas and it starred Michael Jackson. But they didn't stop at 3D for this one. This was your first 4D film project to hit the masses. So not only did you get to see this movie in 3D, but the chairs would shake. There was like smoke all over the room. Lasers are being fired at you. It was fucking wild. The entire length of the movie was 17 minutes long. And I remember when we saw this as a kid, I saw it in Orlando. The line was long. Yeah, like, it was. Super fucking long. There were no fast passes back then. So you just waited. And we were fine with that. <laughs> like people could not wait that long now. I remember we probably waited well over an hour. Uh, but this ride, it ran from 1986 through 1994. And then after Michael Jackson died in 2010, they brought it back until 2015. But I, the one thing I do remember from this was Angelica Houston's character, the Supreme leader. She always looked scary as fuck to me anyway. But if you looked at her character from this, she looked like the queen from alien. If it was a person. Yeah. Do you remember what she looked like in this with the, the like metal shit that she had? Yeah. Like the headdress. Oh dude, it was fucking crazy. And then you had like a monkey with wings named fuzzball. You had a set of Siamese twins that had two heads named Hooter. You had this weird elephant that was like the idiot of the crew. And uh, the theater, it held 700 people in Anaheim per show. And according to this article in the Times, people were willing to wait. It opened that Friday night and people were already there waiting to get on this attraction. I won't call it a ride. But Captain Neo, like it had merchandise up the fucking wazoo. I remember my parents bought me the Captain EO fuzzball stuffed animal. I had like, that little orange stuffed animal with the, like the tail that was like three and a half yep. feet long. And it yeah. had little tiny wings on the back. Yep. But uh, this is uh Captain EO. Everyone is first time we got a theme park attraction as a hot product. Nice. In decades. So yeah. That was a good one. I remember seeing that as well. The characters it was funny. were really good. Oh, they were, it was good for the time. I mean, with anything over time, especially when it's something that's this cutting edge, in 1986, it was like a big deal. And I was reading reviews of the people gave it in 2015 before it closed. Some people are like, oh, it's still amazing. And then there's other people who, you know, were like in their 20s were like, this is garbage. <laughs> Looks like trash. Like it's from 1986. Fuck off. But yeah, that's mine. All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the hot products round? Well, uh, this product is piping hot. Piping. And I have a product that is so hot, there's a good chance I'm actually here because of this product. But this product was released on September 21st, 1973. And I'll tell you what, people could not contain their excitement. Now, when you guys think of legendary sports cars, one of the first ones that probably comes to mind is the Ford Mustang. And on that day in September, Ford introduced to the world... The second generation Ford Mustang marketed as the Mustang II. Now, uh, interesting side note, by the way, uh, this car arrived coincidentally with the 1973 oil embargo and subsequent fuel shortages. But let's get back to the main point. This was named Motor Trend's 1974 Car of the Year and reached over 1.1 million sales over four years of production. Now, I could talk about the Mustang all day, but the Mustang, this is how hot this product was. Now, my dad, 
if I'm not mistaken, he owned, I think it was a 1974 Mustang Mach 1, which coincidentally was the time he ran into a little lady he would eventually marry and start a family with. Did you know them? Back then? <laughs> no. The lady that he that he ran off with to start a family. Uh, well, yeah. That's, that's, my, that's my mother. Man crush. Thanks, Paula. <laughs> See, he knows. Paula's a saint, provided she's not listening to the Macarena. But... Or uh, Yanni. <laughs> Fucking Yanni. Fucking Yanni. Now, my dad, he's a cool dude. He doesn't need a car to woo any ladies, especially my mom. But it doesn't hurt to have brains and a sweet-ass car. Well, there was good reason to believe that this hot product is part of the reason why I'm here in the first place. And I'll tell you what, if that's not a hot product, I don't know what is. So, September 21st, 1973, Ford unveils the uh, or introduces the, the new Mustang too. Were you conceived in that vehicle? Is that what you're saying? I'm gonna say no. <laughs> that would be that would be kind of tight, I would think. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, they're limber. They're young. They were young back then. <laughs> we were all young once. We can make it work. Let's not talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you get details. Actually, on this? no, I was not because so he. I think he got rid of that car. My sister was born in '76, so I think he got rid of the car probably like 77 or 78 so that was that was before me you were conceived in the uh the plymouth caravan yeah sport (laughs) now the dotson station wagon we had growing up that's a different story all bets are off with that bad boy fucking shagging wagon oh yeah all right guys so for my hot product you know it's never too early to start thinking about christmas presents so we'll go over to the San Francisco Examiner, September 19th, 1996, and an article that does just that, a home movies article. So they're talking about all the new home releases that are starting to come out in the fall that'll be priced to own for Christmas. Uh, they talk about the great movie called Independence Day, but don't get too excited. That one doesn't come out till November 22nd. But if the article does go on to say, talk about eclectic, Sony Home Video has released Beavis and Butthead do Christmas, the first Beavis and Butthead holiday home video, and it's priced at $14.98. You didn't think your luck would hold out forever. So this is Beavis and Butthead do Christmas. It was actually a special that was put out. It was about 45 minutes on video cassette, and for that $14.98, you got three specials. You got Ha Ha Humbug, which was a parody of uh, A Christmas Carol, where Beavis is now the Scrooge-like manager of Burger World and is visited by a trio of ghosts. It also included It's a Miserable Life, which of course is a parody of It's a Wonderful Life, where Budhead is visited by his guardian angel, Charlie. And then lastly, we have Letters to Santa Budhead, which was my favorite feature of this. And this is where during the 1995 season of the television show, they would run advertisements to have fans send in letters for the Christmas special where Beavis and Butthead would reply to actual viewer mail on the show. So yeah, if you picked up this on VHS when it first came out, you also got about four different Christmas-themed music videos on it. But hey, it's the Christmas gift that keeps on giving in September. Beavis and Butthead, do Christmas, released September 19th, 1996. Dude, Beavis and Butthead was such a great fucking show. It was. It really was. I, I had it on today, and I was watching through it. I tried to get my 10-year-old to watch it. Absolutely zero interest. But you know <laughs> what? 
if you go back and you watch Beavis and Butthead now, you're going to realize all that that is is the same stuff these no-talent-ass-clown kids are doing on YouTube today. <laughs> it was way ahead of its time. Reaction to watching Nirvana Unplugged for the first time. <laughs> oh, my God. 50 million views. Oh, He's watching Kurt Cobain strum that guitar. Look at him strum that Stratocaster, ladies and gentlemen. We have ourselves a hit. They all do the same fucking stupid face, too, where they're like, oh. What was the one? Like, one, like, just, I think it was for, uh, was it In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins? I don't care how young you are. You've heard that song. Right. It's not your first time hearing that song. No way. Come on. No. So let's toss it over to our judge, Dave Schultz, for the ruling on this round. Uh, before I do make my ruling, I want to make a commentary about the YouTube videos because every cover photo, because they pop up in like my news feed all the time, and everybody has to have like this oh my god face, like they just got something jammed up their their backside <laughs> to promote their video, and I always go, geez, what what's up with this? Is this like written in a contract? Like you must make some kind of goofy face to promote your video. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up because that was the face that I was making before I realized. That nobody could see what the fuck face I was making except for you guys. <laughs> right, right. You know what I'd really like instead of like a first reaction? How about, how about like the last reaction? Yeah, like, like old this people is watching it. something before they die. <laughs> yes, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> 10 million views. <laughs> uh, all right, so on to my judging here. Hot products. Captain EO, you guys had great family vacations as kids. You could go to Walt Disney World and go see a, a flick starring Michael Jackson. Which, honestly, I can only think would be made eons better if it starred Jim Varney. But I am truly impressed because, Man Crush, you mentioned this thing stopped running in 2015. Yeah. That's a long fucking time. But th- you didn't. Did you hear the whole thing? though? No, they, they stopped it in 94. <laughs> oh, no, okay. he wasn't listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they stopped it in 94 after uh, he died. What was that? 2009. In uh-huh. 2010, they brought it back for five years. Still, that's still pretty fucking I, Yeah, good. it's a long, especially like Mark and I were saying how it was dated at that point. I mean, it's old tech. Right. Uh, 1973, pipe and hot news. Drew said he was coming with, with the Mustang 2. Now pipe we know and... your dad is a super cool guy. Oh, he's the best. And, um, you know, had he been, I, I know this is the wrong decade, but if he was the kind of guy who wanted to drive around a Dodge Omni, you know, you probably wouldn't have been here. Your whole family wouldn't exist. So thank Christ he was into cool cats. You know what I mean? And he had a sweet mustache, too. Really? Still does. Oh, yeah. He still has it. Still has it. Blows Tom Selleck out of the water. <laughs> oh, nice. I can only hope that you were maybe conceived in a Chevy Caprice. Beavis <laughs> and Butthead, 1996 due Christmas. Now, maybe I missed this, too, because I don't pay attention to anything whatsoever. Mark, were there actually music videos in either of these three segments that were on the VHS? There was, but only in the initial releases. After that, because of copyright laws and everything, they wanted to mass distribute it more. They took the videos out. But if you got the original 1996 VHS version, you Uh did get a few videos with it. So that's the one you want to find on eBay, huh? See, I don't have a lot of like nostalgic feeling for Beavis and Butthead. I know I'm probably the odd man out here. I watched it, but I was never, like, enamored with it. I like liquid television. I remember I had... You guys remember the show The Head? Oh, yeah. That yeah, was had, weird, man. Yeah, yep. it was weird as hell. I had that on VHS, but I didn't have any Beavis and Butthead on VHS. Oh, uh, let's see here. These are all 
nice little picks that you guys have brought to my attention this evening. And this is going to be a tough call for me because, uh, Mark, you're already out of the running, so fuck you. But listen, the, the Captain EO and the Mustang, too, these are, these are I like them both. I really do. But, you know, you guys like to say on this show that something has legs, which Captain EO truly does. But the Mustang, too, had wheels, and it is going to squeal away with a victory. Hell yeah. Also, if I could just say the one Beavis and Butthead video where they were talking over letters to Cleo here and now <laughs> yeah. is fucking hilarious. All right, I take it back. Mark, you win the round. Congratulations. Oh. <laughs> I lost it. You lost it. <laughs> no, go on. Letters to Cleo. They talk on the video. What happened? Oh my god! It, there's, there's like a part where she like sings the uh, I guess it's the chorus, mm. and she sings like real fast, and you just hear like Beavis like mumbling in the background. He's like, it's it's amazing. It's so great. Did you ever see the Thanksgiving special? They were dressed up as Indians. <laughs> oh yes, I remember that one. Yeah, real politically correct, as Beavis yeah, and oh, Butthead yeah. always was. All right, Drew, you pick up another point heading into our first two point round and jump out to an early lead. What category are we going with? I am gonna go with. I'm gonna go television. Let's do TV. So. Uh... September 20th, 1973, that's the date we're talking about. But before I get to my pick, I want to hop in our little uh, DeLorean, go back in time, if we could, to May 13th, 1973 in Ramona, California, where Battle of the Sexes 1 took place, pitting former men's number one tennis player Bobby Riggs against Margaret Court. Now, Bobby Riggs defeated Margaret in straight sets 6-2 and 6-1. Now, just a little, little... that was the first one. Now, let's fast forward to September 20th, 1973, Battle of the Sexes, Dose, the sequel. Now, Bobby Riggs again took to the court, but this time he faced off against Billie Jean King at the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. Now, things didn't fare too well for the 55-year-old Riggs against the 29-year-old King, as Billie Jean King pretty much wiped the court with him in three straight sets, 6-4, 6-3, and 6-3. Now, besides girl power prevailing here, this match was viewed by an estimated 50 million people in the United States and 90 million people worldwide. So I don't know how that adjusts for inflation there, Man Crush, but it's a lot of people watching this tennis match. He probably should adjust his number one ranking for inflation since he was 55 years old. He was number one way before this. Yeah, it was, I think, uh, 20 years like, before, but it doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't matter. He, <laughs> he was, was like a fucking one. senior citizen playing like a woman in her prime. Doesn't matter. Uh, King's victory here was a big milestone in the public's acceptance of women's tennis. And there would wind up being one more battle of the sexes in 1992 between Jimmy Connors and Martina Navratilova, where Connors won in straight sets uh, 7-5 and 6-2. But Billie Jean King, September 20th, 1973. She said, suck on this, Bobby Riggs, and won the battle of the sexes in convincing fashion. Girl power. Let's also put into play that the fact that there was only like four stations in 1973 just throw it doesn't that matter there. doesn't matter <laughs> let's just let's just be honest it's my first time reaction to 1973 <laughs> 90 million people watched it that's like that's like two-thirds of the world that's like yeah if you had four things to watch that just means there was nothing better to do that day <laughs> <laughs> exactly they probably didn't have figures of how much of the match they watched either they watched all of it all right man crush what do you have for the television round Oh, let's go. Like, there was at least 100 million people to watch this. I'm just going to throw that out there. This is uh, September 15th, 
1986. We just passed the uh, the anniversary of this one. And all I have to say with this pick, thank you, Lord, for Reagan and his deregulation. Had that had he not gotten rid of some of the regulations that were put in place in the late 60s, we would have never gotten some of the awesome cartoons that we grew up with. Like any of them, any of those immaculate 80s cartoons, we would have never got. And this cartoon in particular, I'm actually shocked that it even flew even then to begin with. I, and on top of it, they had a killer Coleco toy line that went with this. And we posted that one on our Facebook last week and everyone loved that. Uh, in 2020, there is no fucking way this show would ever fly. This is a cartoon for kids especially since it was based upon a very popular R-rated movie franchise. And that said, they did tone the show down a bit from the original series. However, all the weapons on the show, real as hell. Do you guys remember G.I. Joe? How the guns kind of shot like laser beams? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this show, nah, not in this one. You had full-on fucking bullets. You had rocket launchers. <laughs> there was a whole arsenal in this thing. The The movie franchise that this is associated with is actually based on a 1972 novel that shares the same name as the first movie that was released in 1982. And I don't think many people actually do realize that, but in 1972, we got the novel first blood by David Morrell, which is mostly the same as the 1982 classic first blood. You still have John Rambo. He's still getting assaulted by cops, still triggers his PTSD. All that stuff's the same until spoiler. If you like to read, Colonel Troutman shoots Rambo in the head, dead, at the end. It's a fucking downer. So you got this really raw book. Then, after you have Rambo First Blood Part 2, that comes out, where Rambo kills 75 people in the film, and they decided, hey, this shit needs a fucking cartoon. And then we got (laughs) Rambo and the Force of Freedom. That shit was born on September 15th, 1986. They did take out the whole PTSD angle pretty much. And they just made him like a shirtless killer for the government because he's he's shirtless through the entire thing. I think there might have been one episode where this dude has a shirt on and he must have lost it because he never found it. And he's always shirtless. <laughs> uh, but every episode, all 65 of these episodes, he battles Savage, which is specialist administrators of vengeance, anarchy and global extortion which is a mouthful. So I'm glad they called it Savage, (laughs) but this is a kid's cartoon. And I vaguely remember one episode where Savage kidnaps a bunch of kids. I think they were like on a plane or buses or something. And they threatened to blow the kids up. This is a cartoon only in the eighties folks. And this is what we got here. We got uh, Rambo and the force of freedom, September 15th, 1986. Dude, people in the eighties love their fucking acronyms too, by the way. Remember (laughs) mask? Remember Mask. mask? Yep. Yeah. The only, my only problem with this, specialist administrators. They couldn't find a better A word. It sounds like a temp you would hire. <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe they didn't want to use assassins because it was a kid's cartoon, but they were killing, they were threatening to kill kids anyway. They were threatening to blow them up. I mean, it should have been specialist assassins of vengeance, anarchy, and global extortion. I think that would have been better. But it is I think what so. It is. Yeah, I knew as soon as you started talking, I knew what cartoon you were talking about. So I went up and got my copy of Rambo, the animated. Oh, you have the DVD set? No, no, no. I have it on VHS. Very nice. Yeah, I have it on VHS. It's actually the episode, The Reign of the Boy King, which you can't go wrong with this cover. It's got Rambo 
on a horse. You know, it's a, a full-out, decked-out jousting horse with the armor and the, the fabric over it. Rambo himself, instead of a machine gun, of course, has a jousting saber, which I've never seen him sport that weapon before. See, I think the cartoon was the catalyst for Rambo 3, because then he goes to Afghanistan and starts riding horses and shit. It might have been. But so, he didn't do any jousting in Rambo 3. No, nah, they didn't have the budget. Rambo jousting is Mark's form of erotica, I think. You really, you really <laughs> went all in on the description of that cover, man. <laughs> this is fan fiction. Yeah, fanfic. All right, guys, so let's go over to my television selection. Uh, September 15th, 1996, we're going to go over to the Times Leader, where an article talks about a new TV show that's going to be uh, debuting soon. Judge Judy says, move over, Judge Wapner. It's Judy Scheinland's turn to dispense a little television justice. Scheinland will sit on the bench in the new courtroom show, Judge Judy, premiering at 830 on Saturdays. Now, she was a judge for about 10 years, and she goes on in this article and talks about how while she was a judge, she kind of noticed that she had zero tolerancy for any other judge that kind of didn't give a little back to the people in the courtroom, that the judges were a little too passive, especially in her line of work, which was family court. She thought if you were too passive, you weren't getting enough information out of both sides. So she says that she kind of became, quote-unquote, sort of an activist. The show would go on to be to win three Emmys over the year, and Judge Judy wasn't even the original title for the show. They originally wanted it to be called Her Honor or Hot Bench. And then they settled on Hot Bench with Judge Judy. And they're like, eh, no, so they just chopped it, and it's always been known as Judge Judy. For she worked for 25 years in the court systems, and then Judge Judy has been on TV for 25 years. She wraps up her 25th season this year, and next year she goes into a brand new judging show that'll be out. So that's what I got for my television. The debut of Judge Judy. Can't tell me you guys haven't all watched a little Judge Judy in your day. Not on purpose. <laughs> Petrie Hawkins Bird, her bailiff, was actually her bailiff in real life when she was in the courts. And when the show was announced that she was going to be starting a new television show as a judge, her bailiff called her and said, hey, if you need me, my suit still fits. So she called him right back, and he's been on, he was on the show as her bailiff. Easiest fucking job in the world. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> on a fake court show. Uh, yeah, I would have I sent my resume in, too. That's what we need on this show, is we need a bailiff. That'd be awesome. <laughs> what was the guy's name on Wapner? Do you remember his? I remember Doug Llewellyn, but I remember <laughs> Doug Llewellyn. bailiff's name. <laughs> Fucking Doug Llewellyn. He was always getting shit on yep. in, the, uh, in the back. No bailiff will ever be as good as Bull. Yeah. <laughs> Night court. Yeah. I'll tell you when it's your turn to talk. <laughs> Dave, it's your turn to talk. He's so bossy. I was going to say, if I was the bailiff, I'd just make like a goofy face and be like, that's right, Judge. Uh-huh. You, you're the boss. You tell me what to do. Here's some paperwork. But you're not the bailiff. You are actually the judge for this episode. Yeah. So let's go down for the ruling on the TV round. I want to switch. Mark, you can be the judge. I'll be the bailiff now. I get I get the perfect haircut for it. I am Richard Mole for crying out loud. Okay, 1973, Battle of the Sexes. This was a long freaking time ago. I mean, I, I'm aware of it, that it existed. But what I think is more impressive, and this is going to sound weird, Drew. I'm sorry, but this is the kind of stuff I come with. 
is that in your movie round, you brought up Billy D. Williams, and then in your TV round, you brought up Billy Jean King. That's right. Two Billies with, with three three names. <laughs> so that's impressive in itself, I got to say. Two Billies make a right. Defeat. <laughs> yeah, I guess they do. 1986, Man Crush. I am the, the thing I'm most curious about Rambo and the Force of Freedom is how much did it cost to make in 1986 compared to 2020? Fucking knows. I, throw out how much it costs <laughs> to make a TV show. I'm just fucking kidding with you, man. I was waiting for like, yeah, back in '86 it cost. Oh, uh, uh, it was about 182 dollars an episode. So that's about uh, 400 dollars 2020. Sounds about right. Um, interesting thing. I actually Googled that while you were talking about it because. I was vaguely remembering the Rambo show, but I couldn't like fully envision what was going on with it. Uh, so I assume I must have seen it. But during that that quick little scan on the internet while you were talking, as I was ignoring you again, I, there's a character on there called Edward Turbo Hayes. Yeah, that was his partner. He was voiced by Uncle Phil from uh, yeah. Fresh Prince, yeah. James Avery. So that's that's pretty interesting. Turbo is actually featured on the episode that I have on the VHS tape, but he's not on the cover. No, he's on the back. Oh, okay, Ooh, all right. So he was like a he was like a race car driver or something. That was like his specialty or some shit. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, but listen, uh, Rambo: The Force of Freedom lasted two seasons, so it wasn't most that... car. Mo- eh, come on. Yeah. What? What? Masters of the Universe. Two seasons, yeah. bro. One of the best shows ever. Transformers. Yeah, they're all pretty short, man. They're, it's not like we're getting 10-year uh, cartoons in the 80s. You know, if Rambo was voiced by Jim Varney, it probably would have went four. <laughs> now, 1996. Sorry, I had to do it. Uh, <laughs> Judge Judy. Uh, yeah, I don't watch court shows. I can't remember ever really being vested in any court show whatsoever for whatever reason. Unless like I called into work sick or something. And I was just flipping through the channels, and it just happened to be on because, I mean, it's it's like the lowest tier of society of people arguing over tenants whose dogs crapped in their, you know, yard or I, I don't even know. It's usually some, like, toothless couple arguing over a, a t- tire for a car or something. You know what I mean? Something so ridiculous. You're like, like $87. Oh yeah, exactly, <laughs> which in 2020 is, like... But the thing is, listen, Judge Judy has been on for a long time. She's got that staying power. You know what I mean? That's pretty crazy is that I don't know how how her ratings necessarily are, but I can only assume they must be fucking great if she's been on the air for that long and for being such an annoying old woman. People eat those shows up, though. There's like a million of them now. Like there's – I can't even name all the judge people on now. Dude, I think on – what I saw, like they have Gary Busey – Pet judge, <laughs> yeah, pet judge. <laughs> so I'd watch that. I'd watch that. Yeah, willfully. Does he talk uh, to the pets though? <laughs> do the pets talk uh, back? That's that's what we want to know. And are they voiced by James Avery? Because that'd be even more impressive. Well, he's deceased, so. Well, that's what I'm saying right there. It'd be like holy fucking cow. Talk about a <laughs> next level, right next there. level animation. <laughs> what would be even better is if Gary Busey thinks. The pets are talking back to him, but they're really not. He probably does. <laughs> yeah. He he did what with your bone? <laughs> A boner. Hey, now. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to go with 96 on this one. Judge Judy gets, and Mark gets the win. All right. So I tie up the game with Drew, heading into the final round, the music round. I'm going to take my uh, privilege this this time around, much like Man Crush did, and I'm going to defer. All right, Man Crush, you get to start off the music round. 
That's fine, because I'm going to be shitting all over you motherfuckers of this one. September 19th, <laughs> 1986. Here's his band's second studio album. It's a damn good album. And from time to time, like metal comes up on the show. But it's been a while since I got to select something from the big four. I know it's come up on here before, and I'm talking about thrash metal. And most fans, they know the big four is made up Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax. And over the years, there's been other amazing thrash metal bands. You could throw Sepultura in there. But these four are responsible for putting it on the map. Metallica, they're pretty much like the grandpappies of thrash. And they are basically responsible for this band. Since they ended up firing this band's founding member a few years prior to this release, having felt spurned by Metallica, this guy went right to work trying to get another band together. And about a year and a half later, this dude's new band would release their first album on Combat Records, and everyone lost their shit. They would even be the opening act for one of Metallica's shows that year. The same Metallica that shit-canned this guy. Within a couple months, they left Combat Records and they signed with Capitol Records. Not too fucking shabby. And then, you know, I read this self-help book a couple years back. It was called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck or Not Giving F Symbols K. And there's an entire chapter about how Dave Mustaine got fired and said, fuck everyone, I'm doing this shit on my own. And he fucking did. Because on September 19th, 1986, they released the epic Peace Sells But Who's Buying. In a little over three years, he went from being unceremoniously fired from Metallica. This guy went back home to live with his mom. I'm not even making this shit up. Went back home to live with his mother. Worked as a telemarketer. Started two bands. And then cemented themselves as Thrash Metal's Big Four with the release of P-Cells. And their previous album was great, too. Killing is my business and business is good. It's fucking fast. It's great. But this album, it just put them over the top. It's still fast, it's dark, it's political, but they put it together in like such an amazing way. And then on top of that, the cover art with Vic Rattlehead, it's epic. It's probably one of the best album covers of all time. It's got him holding the, the briefcase and shit. It's fucking, it's amazing. The album was certified platinum, but it's almost like more than sales when you're talking about like thrash metal albums. Because when I was in high school, everyone had a copy of this, whether that was on record or tape or an actual copy most people had something that they were playing this album on and most recently rolling stone even held this one as the eighth greatest metal album of all time and i'd agree it's a classic unadulterated september 14th 1986 we get peace sells but who's buying by megadeth wasn't mustaine kicked out for drinking too much which is insane for like Metallica <laughs> to kick somebody out. Like, how much was he drinking when Metallica, who was like consistently Dude, they hammered, threw out a bunch of fucking allegations, basically saying that he was drinking too much, that he was getting into arguments with them and shit. He was just too fucking talented to be in the band, is what it turned out to be. I mean, they, I mean, look at when, uh, what's his name from Primus came in there and they were like, yeah, you're too good to Claypool. be the bassist. Yeah, like, you know, so I love Metallica, especially during this time period. But, you know, there's a lot of stories there and Mustaine completely denies like all the allegations that were against him. And the fact that they played together, they went on that big four uh, tour and whatever, and they had that huge shows. If somebody was like that big of an asshole, you don't want to deal with them anymore. Would they still be in your fucking like playing in your backyard? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't doesn't make right. much sense. 
All right, Drew Zachman, this category is right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. What do you have for the music round? So this one, I'm not talking about an album this time. I am going to drag everybody down on September 20th, 1973. The day before the lead single to his fifth album, I Got a Name, was released, Jim Croce played a concert at Northwestern State University's Prather Coliseum in Louisiana as part of the Life and Times tour. And after the show, he boarded an airplane and was heading to Sherman, Texas for a concert at Austin College. Unfortunately, the plane didn't reach its destination as their plane crashed into a tree during takeoff, killing Croce as well as everyone else on board. So yes, I'm bringing a sadness here, but since it's the music category and during this time frame, uh, you know, there was something with Jim Croce, I, I had to bring it up. And Croce is a straight up legend. His work with Mari Mulison, who was also from, uh, also killed in that crash, by the way. Uh, Mari was only 24 years old. I didn't realize he was that young. Uh, and also Mari was from Trenton, New Jersey. So Jersey represent. But Croce, uh, Croce was a straight up boss. He released songs like Time in a Bottle, amazing song, Bad, Bad, Leroy Brown, Operator, the aforementioned I Got a Name, which wound up being released uh, in December of 1973 and hit number nine on the U.S. singles chart. And that's like one of the best songs ever written. I don't care. Uh, we also learned that you don't tug on, because of uh, Jim Croce, we learned that you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit in the wind, <laughs> and you don't pull the mask off that old Lone Ranger, and of course you don't mess around with Jim. Honestly, if you don't like Jim Croce, you need to reassess your life. Um, that's what I. That's what I've arrived at here. But anyway... September 20th, 1973, legend Jim Croce, Mari Mulison, and the rest of all, and the rest of the members on their flight were killed after their plane hit a tree during takeoff. I just want to clarify, this is the best music of this week <laughs> in September of 1973? The most, the most impactful thing that no, happened no, in no, music. No, this is a best of episode. I, Mark said it at the very beginning, this is bringing the best of the week of your September. It's the biggest thing that happened. Oof, tough it was it was very it was very important because we could have had more crochi but we didn't so all right guys so i'll wrap up this game with my music selection now this album it debuted at number two on the billboard 200 chart upon its initial release and it sold 148,000 copies its very first week eventually it would go on to be certified triple platinum the title track from this album won a Grammy Award for Best Metal Performance in 1998, and this album was ranked sixth amongst the most influential albums of all time by Kerrang! Magazine. Now, Rolling Stone, on the other hand, listed the album at number 18 on that list of the 100 greatest metal albums of all time. Now, I don't have to give too much background on the origins of this band, because a few episodes back, Man Crush actually picked their first studio album. So I'm going to pick their next studio album after that. I'm talking about the band Tool and their release of Enema on September 17th, 1996. Now, this album is such a contrast to Undertow. Because as Mancrush told you in that episode, you know, Mater James Keenan talked about sexual abuse and kind of the dark side of religion. And it was a very dark and morbid album. This one, he said he wanted to try to figure out a way to transmute all that stuff and kind of just let it go. You know, finding different paths to disintegrate all the negativity. He did a lot of esoteric thinking, spiritual and religious reading, and a lot of math at the time. So that's the influence behind the Enema album. It was Tool's first album with bassist Justin Chandler, and the uh, name Enema actually comes from the Latin word for soul. 
And it's a combination of the word for soul, which is enema, A-N-I-M-A, and of course, enema, as we all know what an enema is. So you combine the two and that's what you get. A cleansing of the soul. A cleansing of the soul, that's right. This album is just phenomenal. It's kind of like drug-induced psychedelic metal. A lot of people consider Tool to be a borderline jam band as well. One of my favorite artworks and packaging to ever come out, it won a Grammy Award for Best Recording Package. It had a lenticular jewel cover, if you guys remember. Yeah, you had to like flip it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you look at it just right, it showed California kind of disappearing off the coast. And that was uh, one of the themes of the title track of the album was what would happen if California or Los Angeles ceased to exist, slipped learn, into the ocean. Learn to swim, man. It goes deeper into that about how it would uh, make the financial institutions collapse and everything. So some pretty deep stuff on this album from Maynard James Keenan with the release of Enema, September 17th, 1996. Let me just throw this out there, Mark. There was actually, just so people aren't like, ah, no, it's not. They did have two EPs that came out yes. prior right. to. Yeah, OP8 and was right. seven Undertow two was the first stu- seven seven right. Undertow or was the first studio album like the full length album right correct just in case because i love getting them <laughs> also it. if you um because the, yeah that that packaging was amazing and if you took the um like the liner notes out and then like refolded it and, and so you took out like the main uh like image that was up front there was another image on the inside of like a guy trying to self-filate So if you could, like, flip it, you could see the guy, like, going down himself. FYI. All right, so let's kick it over to Judge Dave Schultz for the final ruling on this round. Wow. Um, All right, I'm going to go in reverse order here. I'm going to talk about 96 first. Because real, I don't know, last episode, you guys were talking about, you know, Mark, you bring up the Grammys. But, I mean, Grammys, they were kind of willy-nilly. You know what I mean? And and you guys talked pretty extensively (laughs) about that last time out. Yeah. Um, yeah, last yeah. week, how horrible. Yeah, exactly. Are. So yeah. when you're like, oh, yeah, they won all these uh, Emmy, Grammys, rather, I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you guys I think kinda... it's for, you know what? Let me put this in perspective, though. And I sure. think Mark's in the same uh, like wheelhouse with this. They're good with certain genres. Right. When it comes to metal or rock, they kind of lose their mind. Yeah. Mm. Very inconsistent. Yeah. So it's not like they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. It's just. Certain genres are just like I don't know, like it's like the guy they put the guy that's in charge of hip hop to do uh, to do metal. Yeah, you know it's just fucked up. Well, Drew earlier in the show mentioned money doesn't mean anything. We'll need to do awards, okay? <laughs> they don't mean jack diddly squat. But beyond all that, Enema, you know, it's Mark. You just mentioned it was spelled funny. There was all this like a. Uh, behind-the-scenes intent to it. I hate anything where I don't know how to pronounce it when I first look at it. It's kind of like I couldn't listen to Sade for years because I kept calling her Sade. You know? I'm like, I don't know. I, it just made me feel bad. I I have another confession, too. I think Tool was the worst live show I've ever seen in my life. You're not wow. the first person. You know, I've heard both sides. I've heard that they're amazing, like Pink Floyd-esque. Mm-hmm. And then a buddy of mine saw them two years ago, or maybe it was even last year. They played in Jersey. He said they were fucking horrible. Yeah, I think that's it all depends what you're used to in a concert. You know, like I said, they're kind of more like a jam band. So don't expect three minute songs. No, exactly. I saw them in uh, was it East Rutherford right up there in uh, North Jersey. And um, 
I think System of a Down over them. But yeah, they <clears throat> they uh, I feel like uh, Adam Jones, the guitarist, just would hit a note and get feedback for like seven minutes. And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm not high. I had a couple beers in the parking lot before, but I'm not high. Can you please play more off Anima and, and, and Undertow? Just don't just stop with the feedback for like a half hour. Yeah. When they played songs, they were great, but like they seriously probably spent like a good like twenty minutes of like Adam Jones, like let me see what I can do with this one note for the next ten. That minutes. That reminds me of uh, Have you ever seen Sonic Youth live? No, no, dude. Sonic Youth. We saw them in in Jersey as well. We saw them in Camden. They opened up for Pearl Jam, and they were legit playing the guitar with a fork. <laughs> so just for like ten minutes, the whole crowd was like, "What the fuck is going on?" They thought it sounded good. I, w- I was wasted. I was completely hammered. I think if I was, yeah, tripping on acid or something, it would have been more appealing to yeah. me. But I was more interested in the opening act anyway. It was Tomahawk. And so when Tool got on a stage, I was already smashed. And I'm like, this is just too long. Get me the hell out of here. Um, but you know what? The album's impressive. Every Everybody I knew, I was a senior in high school in 96, loved that record. And it was just, you couldn't avoid it. Everybody was playing it. Everybody loved Tool. 1973, Jim Croce, 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 let's all crochet, let's all knit. Anyway, he goes down in his plane crash, and I I always wonder why music artists just don't travel by pack mule. I mean, (laughs) I, I, you know, planes, bad idea, real bad idea. I mean, I don't know, just too much, uh, too much tragedies happening because of that. Drew, it is a downer, but it is, you know what, Man Crush was kind of, uh, you know, second guessing your choice, meaning, you know, it wasn't like a record or a song or anything, but I think it was very impactful nonetheless. Now on to 1986, Megadeth, Peace Cells, but who's buying? Oh my God, this brings me back to my greasy ass days as a teenager where I'd wear the same band t-shirt for a week on end. Same jeans. You name it, dude. I was just, you could have just <laughs> wrung me out and you could have cooked fries with me. I was just so gross. <laughs> I don't think you were the only one though, and I'm glad you said that because, like, I think I did the same. Sh- I wore like I'd wear a Pearl Jam shirt for like three days. Yeah, and you thought you're the coolest motherfucker on the face of the earth. <laughs> Grunge, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, oh yeah. It's like I remember. I uh, like if a girl was gonna call me, or if I was gonna call a girl, I'd make sure like a certain track was playing in the background, <laughs> so she could have like a you know a peek into my soul. You know, through someone else's music. I was such a lame fucking kid. It was terrible. Are you playing anal cunt in the background? Uh, no, I wasn't playing anal cunt. No. No. I think I think then it was like Stone Temple Pilots or whatever. Oh, that's a good one. Big Empty. Yeah, you know, just something. It, but it wasn't, yeah, I wasn't playing like Cannibal Corpse or something, you know. <laughs> hey, baby, what's going on? Yeah, I can't wait to mutilate you and throw you in a garbage bag. <laughs> there was nothing like that. But my God, Megadeth back then, holy shit, man. And this album was fucking huge to me personally. And my my little group of outcasts, again, who were just completely disgusting fucking kids who thought we were the coolest rebels, individuals, unique human beings ever, which it was just the opposite of the truth. Just fucking smelly kids. What was your favorite song in the album? There's only eight of them, which I always loved. No, I like the title track. That that was a... Cells. Yeah, that was that was the one for me. I, I just like that song so much. But I mean, the other thing that was also appealing to Megadeth was something that was also very at that time. Again, I'm not talking about now, but then where they had a mascot and the merchandise and everything else. It was like um, I was going to say similar to Iron Maiden yep. where you had uh, Eddie. Right. So, you know, you had your zombie guy and here they had Vic 
who is the skull with the fucking the earmuffs made out of metal and the chains hanging from them and stuff. And I mean, come on. I think it was part of the whole appeal of a lot of those bands back at the time, too, was also like, again, the image they were trying to sell. And they had like a sports team or something else, like a mascot. You could easily slap on a shirt. You thought you were part of the team, you know. But yeah, so 80, the 86 pick obviously appeals to me personally for being a complete nutter loser. <laughs> 96 is big just because the album was huge. The band was fucking massive. 73, just depressing as fuck. So, uh, yeah, this is a tough one, guys. I don't even know where the points lie right now, so it's not like I can say, oh, yeah, I'm picking somebody so that we can just end this fucking show and go home. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go for my personal preference here. Sorry, but I'm picking 86 for this one. Megadeth P-Cells. But who is buying... To win the music round. What? And with that, just like a good porno, Man Crush comes from behind <laughs> for the win. It's the new shirt. It's the Chucky shirt. I'd fucking ditch the Jets. See what happens? You're a fucking regular Harry Buffington, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you need to use that at work tomorrow like five times. Tell random people about Harry Buffington. Just make up stories about him. So they ask you later on. <laughs> like, oh yeah, my buddy. Harry Buffington? Yeah. Great dude. He used to listen to Megadeth with me all the time. Yeah, greasy, greasy guy, that Harry Buffington. (laughs) (laughs) He once saw Bo Jackson run a 40 or drink a 40. I forgot what the story was, but great guy. Maybe he ran a 40 while drinking a 40. That would be impressive. Bo could do that. Yeah, dude, Bo could do anything. Like That's why I brought that story. You got to give this guy props. I feel so bad for him. Most athletes I don't give a shit about because they're just like overpaid babies. But like this dude, it just sucks what happened to him. Yeah. He also has that. uh, What is it? Bo is it? Bo bikes Bama. So he does like a a bicycle ride and raises money for charity. I forget what the charity is. I want to say MS maybe. Uh, I I could be off on that, but he does a bike ride every year and he crushes it. still. he's awesome. Yeah, the guy just excels at everything he touches. Everything. He's one hell of an archer, too. Yeah. He's fucking Paul Bunyan. There's crazy story. Like, when uh, he was out of baseball for a couple years, uh, he came back. The Royals ditched him. He signed with the White Sox. Yep. His mother was dying. And he had this chat with his mother, and his mother said to hit a home run for him. Supposedly is what happened. His mother said to hit a home run for her, and she died. She passed away. His first at bat for the White Sox. I want to say it was the first pitch. It's been a long time since I saw the story. Fucking blasting a home run. The guy was a beast. Fucking crazy. I mean, he'd been out of baseball, so it wasn't like he was in his prime. You know, this dude came back from, ah, oh, it's just awful how the whole shit happened. Guys, at what point did Bo Jackson grasp lightning with his bare hands and crack the earth in half? 97, I think. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I knew that was coming. This is truly legendary stuff we're talking about here. I was going to say, it's like Paul Bunyan or like a you know, folklore-esque material. Oh, he's got, dude, there's some stories about Bo Jackson where you'd be like, no way. Well, here's a story for you. He lost a round for Man Crush to Willie Mays and Drew, so that can go down <laughs> to the, the Bo. Yeah, Drew, Drew brings Willie Mays retiring as mm. a, to a best of. He's one of the best players ever in the history of He retired. Of That's a sad story. That's it's not over. sad. We got to enjoy everything he gave us on the field. <laughs> All right, so Man Crush pulls out the victory in this one. Now let us know what you think about Judge Dave Schultz ruling over on our Facebook page. Do you think he got this episode right? 
just hit us up over at facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Now, once again, I want to thank Drew Zachman and Dave Schultz for coming on this episode. Now they got some exciting news about a brand new show heading your way. Yeah. So, uh, Dave and I big music buffs and we have a new music podcast coming out, uh, in October. So we're getting pretty close to our release date and the podcast is called songs gone wrong. And you can get it, you know, we'll have it available for whatever podcatcher you use, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever you guys use, we'll have it there for you guys. And, you know, basically what we do is we, uh, along with you, the fans, decide if those hit songs got it right or did those songs go wrong. And that's kind of what our what our podcast is based on. So we kind of talk about the merits of songs. You know, if we talk about songs from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, you know, some recent ones too. So we have a lot of, a lot of great uh, music to pick from. And we're on Twitter right now. You can you can find us over there. We're at Songs Gone. Our website is almost ready, songsgonewrong.com. But, yeah, pretty excited about it. We love music. And if you guys like music, too, then definitely check us out. Yep, and obviously I'm the color guy since I'm working with a professor here who just gave you the complete rundown of the show while I said nothing whatsoever. But, listen, I, I do want to mention this, though. You know, this was a connection made due to this very program, and that's why we are also stealing your shtick a little bit by tapping into this nostalgia vein. But, you know, Mark and Man Crush, you guys are like the Chuck Woolery tier on, on the it a, connection. You called it a program. <laughs> yeah, you know, on the Dueling Decades, because me and Drew met here on this very show, and now we are spawning. That's a nice word, too, huh? Spawning. Yes, we are. We, are create, we have created our own music podcast, tapping into that nostalgic vein that we all love to tickle and toy with. We're spawning it in the back of a Mustang, too. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you don't have a cool mustache like your dad. No, not even close. <laughs> All right, Duelers, we'll keep an eye out for that show and make sure you subscribe to it. want to thank everybody for listening, and if you've missed an episode, you can always go back on DuelingDecades.com and subscribe to the show. We're on all the podcast platforms. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and on Spotify. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.